It is true, the older we get, the, uh, the faster the days go by. And here we are, uh, finishing out this semester, and then uh, a week from the night, instead of being in, in our Bible study, we'll be uh, thinking about Thanksgiving the next day, and some of us traveling, and some of us having family in, but suddenly it's on us. How, how quickly, uh, how quickly life is going by. We have so much to be thankful for because uh, we know you through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And of all the people on the earth, we are uh, most blessed to know Christ, to have his Bible, to have eternal life because we've trusted in him alone. He is our savior. We cannot save ourselves. He is our master, he is our shepherd, he is our Lord. We follow him. We've, we've tried to do it our way, and it just, it never, it never quite works. We're always coming back to him and asking for wisdom and asking for direction and guidance. And, and when we ask for wisdom, as James said, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and without reproach. We would ask for wisdom in a time where wisdom is, um, is rare. We are living in uh, tenuous days. We are living in days that uh, concern us. And we don't want to live as the world lives. We want to live in the counsel of the godly, not the ungodly. I'm grateful for these men that make their way here on Wednesday night with busy weeks and busy schedules and uh, fighting traffic. And here they are to open up their Bibles and uh, to hear from you. So again tonight, we ask that you would teach us. We want to be careful to have thankful hearts tonight. We uh, often get worn down by the cares of life and the and the great pressures of life. And sometimes those can, um, those can get overwhelming and we forget all that we have been given. So we wanna say thank you. We wanna have hearts that are full of gratitude. We, we thank you for the good gifts that you have given to us. And we know that all those gifts come down from you. So Father, tonight, uh, as we finish up this life of David, make, make this a valuable time as we study the scriptures. Uh, in light of how David lived and how he finished, help us to live wisely and learn from his life and his mistakes and his victories. Instruct us in the way that we should go. Give us teachable hearts tonight. We would ask in Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 13, verse 36. And that may surprise you because we're finishing up our study on David. We've been looking at David's life through the lives of other people that the Lord used in his life. All these people were what we've been calling uh, tools in God's uh, toolbox. 
God uses the people that come into our lives. Uh, God is providential over all the details of our lives. Uh, as different tools in a toolbox can be used to build up and to tear down, so the same thing is true of people that come into our lives. Some of them irritate us, some of them rub us the wrong way, others lift us up, others encourage us. They're all part of God's plan to conform us into the image of Christ. And we learn different lessons from different ones. Sometimes in our lives, uh, for years and years and years and years until we die. Other times they come in and then they go out of our lives. But nevertheless, God has overseen it all. Uh, we are told that two things are inevitable. The first one would be taxes. Sorry to bring it up again, but it seems like it's inevitable. Uh, the second thing is death. And in Acts 13, 36, we read this short account concerning David, and the scripture says this, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. That's it. And that's where we're all going. There's going to be a moment, there's going to be a day when we take our last breath. Thanks. Appreciate it. They're going to have to live with the pain, but thanks. If you have your lights on, you might need to turn them off. But just for kicks, I'm not going to tell you which car it is. <laughs> Don't you think there ought to be consequences in life? I mean, you know. But if you sense that you, you might want to go out. But if you've got a Ford F-350, you're one of the guys, anyway. Uh, how do you transition from a Ford 350 to, um, to undergoing decay? Well, everything dies, even a Ford 350s. That was pretty good, don't you think, how that just segued right in there. You probably got an old Ford pickup in your backyard somewhere. Anyway, uh, nothing lasts forever. And David was one of the greats of history. But somewhere around the age of 70, he took his last breath. He took his dying breath. Um, it's interesting the context for which this statement is made uh, about David. <clears throat> if you look at verse 32, Acts 13. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Isn't that interesting? Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. The body of Christ did not undergo decay when he died on the cross. Verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. 
David's body is still in the tomb. But look at verse 37. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. David was great. Jesus is greater. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus went to the cross. Here we come, here we, we're coming into what we call the holidays. Don't call them Christmas. Don't call them Thanksgiving. Call them the holidays. Well, you know, you want to tweak them. Just, just say, happy holy days. Because that's what it is. We're into the holy days. Thanksgiving is a holy day. The pilgrims, you remember those guys. The pilgrims, and this stuff really happened. The pilgrims came to this land. Why did they come to this land? To escape religious persecution. Um, you had a group, and then following the pilgrims, you had a group called the Puritans that came over. And we make fun of the Puritans. But why do we even call them Puritans? Because they wanted to purify the church. They didn't want, did not want anything to infiltrate the gospel and the message about Jesus Christ. So they underwent tremendous persecution. They came to this nation because they felt like they could get a start here, and they did get a start. But they almost starved those pilgrims because they had no clue. Most of them died on the way over. And then they landed, and they had no idea how to survive. And they were just about at the point of starvation, and suddenly this Indian, two Indians walk into their encampment, frightened them to death until one of them opened his mouth and spoke perfect, the perfect king's English. His name was Squanto. This isn't, this isn't a Disney story. This is real. And see, it used to be that, that we taught kids this in school. But boy, we sure don't do it anymore. No, no, no. We wouldn't want to twist their minds and influence their minds that there is a God who providentially provided for the pilgrims, sent, a, sent this powerful Indian who was intimidating, but when he opened his mouth, he spoke perfect English. Why? Because he, that, they were on his land, his tribal land. But he had been taken to England and then had worked in England, had learned English, was on his way back to his homeland as he was getting off the ship with some other Indians, was uh, uh, taken by force, uh, was almost slow, taken to Europe, sold into slavery, took him years to make his way back. When he comes back to his homeland, where the pilgrims are, he shows up about six months before they show up. Looking forward to seeing his tribal people. Oh, by the way, he had become a Christian. And he wanted to come back and share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, with his tribal people. And when he showed up at the encampment, they were all dead. All he found were skeletons. He was the last living one of his tribe. And he was in grief. He was in absolute grief. Isn't that amazing? And he was in a deep depression, and he went to another tribe and was with a friend, uh, another Indian, and just, he was in utter despair. And the weeks and the months rolled by, and he just, he was in such despair that, that he had not been there. And, and a plague had rolled through and wiped out every one of the members of the tribe. 
It was tragic. And five, six months later, another Indian said, I'm going back over there. Why don't you come with me? There are a bunch of Englishmen there. He said, Englishmen? We're the pilgrims. And he walked in there, and they saw him, and they didn't know what to do except to grab whatever weapon they could find, and he started, he started speaking English to them. He was the one that saved their lives. He was the one that taught them how to plant corn. He was the one that said, uh, he, he showed them how to catch eels. Uh, it's quite an amazing story if you read Peter Marshall's book. It's all documented. It's the providence of God. Uh, see, this just isn't myth. And that at a certain point when the harvest came in, by the way, he was the one that showed them how you plant corn and you put a fish in. How many of you guys learned this in school? How many of you guys didn't learn it? I, I'm serious. You didn't learn that you plant corn and you put a fish in. Yeah, see. But this is true stuff. When the harvest finally came in, they gave thanksgiving to the higher power. No, they didn't. They gave thanksgiving to the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. You see? That's a holy day, Thanksgiving. It's just not getting to Macy's early. It's thanking God. Oh, and then Christmas is when we remember the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who created the world, the one who created all the stars. By him, all things were created. Was born of a virgin, a virgin. And he came to save his people from their sins. That's what Christmas is about. The other stuff is part of it and has its place and it's fun. But that's the heart of it. These are holy days, aren't they? Um, Oh, here's the thing about the Lord Jesus. He lived a sinless life. He went to the cross, paid for your sin, and he paid for mine. He was buried. Go to 1 Corinthians 15 with me. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Did you catch that line in verse 3? For I delivered to you as of first importance. In other words, this is critical. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. They saw the living Christ. He did not undergo decay. David accomplished the work of God in his own generation, and then he was buried and underwent decay, but the Lord Jesus didn't. The Lord Jesus is alive and seated at the right hand of the Father. 
Warren Wearsby has made this comment about that passage back there in Acts 13. He said, God had promised David. Now, we've been studying the life of David. You know, and, 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 and what he's saying there in Acts 13 is that David finished his life, took his last breath, and was buried. He accomplished the work that God had given him to do in his own generation. David died. He was buried. He was history. But the great thing, the amazing thing about the grace of God, and you look, we've looked at David's life, and we've seen his, his great triumphs. We've seen his great failures. He's just like us. He, 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 he loved Christ. He had a heart for God. He was a man after God's own heart. But he was a great sinner, just like us. That sin, it's still in our heart, isn't it? It's still fulminating. We still fight it. It's still trying to conquer us. It's a daily battle with it. He battled with it. Sometimes he won, sometimes he lost. Just like you win, just like you lose, just like me. We're all, it's, we're all in the same boat. But the grace of God, the grace of God was always there for David. So at the end of his life, you could look back over the grace of God in David's life. All that God did in his life. You know the amazing thing about the grace of God? It doesn't end when you die. Watch what God did for David. Wiersbe said, God had promised David that from him the Messiah would come. That's 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. This was an everlasting covenant with a throne to be established forever. That's 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 16. If Jesus is the Messiah and he died and remained dead, this covenant could never be fulfilled. Therefore, Jesus had to be raised from the dead or the covenant would be proven to be false. God made a promise to David, and it's fulfilled. And Christ is coming back, and he's going to set up his kingdom. Now, David, uh, what does that say in that passage in, in, in Acts 13? David, after he served the purposes of God in his own generation. In other words, God had a plan for David's life in his generation. God has a plan for your life in your generation. Did you know that? Uh, turn over with me to Psalm 139. I, I, as men, one of the things that we struggle with, uh, we, we struggle with, uh, we struggle with meaning, finding meaning. Why am I alive? Why am I here? Why do I exist? We, we, if you're a thinking man, if you're a godly man, you just don't want to go through life and breathe and uh, eat Doritos and watch football and get blind, stinking drunk and then wake up in your own vomit and get up and go to work and then do it all over again the next weekend. There's got to be more to life than that. Does there not? Gosh, what a lousy existence. You were created for a purpose. In Psalm 139... And see, and, 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 and so much of life is struggling to find your purpose. Why am I here? Why am I created? Uh, it was made clear to David early what his purpose was. When, when Samuel came and anointed him as king, it was pretty clear what his purpose was going to be, although he was going to have to wait for 10 years. He was going to be king. You would have thought, well, man, he'll be inaugurated here shortly. But he was on the run for 10 years, and he had a crazy man, Saul, who was trying to kill him. So he's hiding out, living in different caves and holes for the next 10 years. A lot of times, a lot of times, 
God will declare something. God will give you a promise. You will have a godly desire, but then you have to wait. You ever notice that? That so much of the Christian life is waiting for God to come through? Interesting exercise is to read through the book of Psalms. Take a month, read through the Psalms. Every time you see the word wait, circle it. It'll depress you. (laughs) Because God's always telling his guys to wait, and the last thing in the world we want to do is wait. We don't have time to wait. My uh, wife Mary, her mom's been here, and her two sisters. And so before I was coming over here tonight, they were, you know, getting in the car, Mary was taking the airport, great. And then Sharon said, oh, let's get a picture. I thought, well, here we go. (laughs) Now, we got a family picture scheduled on Sunday that we've been emailing about for the last 12 years. (laughs) The sister-in-law, the daughter-in-law, everybody's, you know, what colors? Oh, I think we, you know. It all comes across, I hit delete, because I'll ask Mary Sunday, what are we doing? You guys know what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, So they're getting in the car, and Sharon said, oh, let's take a picture. Okay, let's just just take one picture. I said, great. And um, it took a long time. And... They get an idea in this, and, 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 and you know, there was a lot of waiting involved. And at a certain point, one of the sisters made a, 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 a hand signal to me. And I said, what does that mean? And she said, it means patience. It's a patience. Because you see, it was taking a real long time. I've had it in a couple of guys. Hey, let's get it back. Ah, great. Hey, see ya. <laughs> They're adjusting their coats and their hands. Then the wind started blowing and, and the sun's going. I'm still a little hacked off, to be honest with you. <laughs> Just take the stinking picture, okay? All right. But I took them. I took them and was reasonably um, cooperative. But see, I needed to get out of there and go serve, find the purpose of God for me and my generation, and it wasn't taking pictures. Okay. You sense the rage, I think, coming out of my, my heart here. Oftentimes, God says, wait. So David, see, his purpose was clear at an early age. You're going to be king. But he had to wait for 10 years. I was reading Obadiah Sedgwick again, the old Puritan pastor. And he was talking about waiting on God. You you read the promises, you read the promises, they're there, they're for us. You read the promises, but oftentimes God doesn't come through and we'd like him to come through. And and at a certain point, he said, when God often delays his answer, it's because he has a double mercy in mind. I'd never heard that before. God will often delay his answer because he has a double mercy in mind. See, usually when we're praying about something and we're under pressure and we're asking God to resolve it and to bring an answer, we usually have a specific thing in mind.
The reason I'm smiling and hesitating about this is that for a year I've been frustrated and praying about something in particular. And it has been delayed, 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 and delayed. And Friday at 6 p.m., I got a phone call. And I thought it was dead, and there it was. And I was stunned, and I was shocked, and I was very grateful. But as I pondered that over the weekend, I began to realize that because it had been delayed, and I'd marked that in Obadiah Sedgwick's book about three months ago. And the next morning, I happened to pick it up, and I saw that thing, and I began to realize, you know what? You know what? When that call came in last night, not only was it a mercy, not only was the prayer was answered, but it actually turned into a double mercy because it was, it, was, it was prolonged and it didn't happen back in April when I was hoping. Because it's happened now, now there is a double mercy and that blessing is going to come over and that means this is going to happen. And actually it also means now this is going to happen. And suddenly I'm thinking, this is not just a single mercy, this is a double mercy full gainer with a half twist. <laughs> and throughout the weekend, I've been realizing... You know what? This was worth waiting for. Did I have days of frustration? Absolutely. So I was so frustrated I couldn't spit. God's timing is always perfect. God governs the timing of our lives, including the timing of our existence. Note Psalm 139. Because, you see, we're talking about David. We've been looking at David's life. Uh, look at what David says in Psalm 139, verse 16. David says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. He's giving praise to God. If you go back to verse 13, he says, you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. See, a lot of times we're wondering, why am I here? Why do I exist? We're trying to find meaning. Here's the answer to the search for meaning, the quest for meaning. In 13, you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. David was born with certain gifts. David had leadership gifts when he was born. Why did he have those gifts when he was born, although they were dormant? He had those gifts because when God was forming and fashioning him in his mother's womb, God gave him the gifts. Did God give him all the gifts? No, God gave him what he would needed for the work that he was going to do. No one has all the gifts. So what God does is he gives you the gifts that you need to accomplish his purpose that you, you are going to do in his generation, in your own generation. He withholds other gifts. But what he will do in your life, he will bring other people into your life who have the gifts that you don't have because you can't do it by yourself. So don't ever get threatened if other people come along who have better gifts than you do because you need them. And why would you be threatened? Thank God for him. Verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. In other words, he's saying, before I showed up on ultrasound, when your wife was pregnant, did you go in there and you see a little baby swimming around? My gosh, that's a little baby. You see the little fingers, little hands? That, that's an amazing moment. David says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. 
before I was formed, when I was sperm and an egg. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Watch this. And in your book, they were all written, the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. That's an amazing statement. So when you compare that with Acts 13, 36, and it says, for David, after he served the purposes of God in his own generation and was laid among his father, uh, and laid among his fathers, and he underwent decay. That was all part of the plan of God. The moment of his conception, the moment of his birth, and the moment of his death. Because Hebrews chapter 10 says it's appointed for a man once to die, and then comes judgment. So your whole life, the very fact that you exist, is governed. Your, your conception, your birth, the gifts, the work that you have to do, it's all, and your moment of your death is all governed by God. Did you know that? That's, that's really quite remarkable, isn't it? Um, look at uh, Job 14.5. Well, I'm not quite sure about that. Well, let's see what Job had to say. Job 14.5. Since his days are determined, speaking of man, we ought to pick up 14.1. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. That's pretty much it, guys. What does this say? Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. That's it. It's a hard life. Verse 5. Since his days are determined, the number of his... Get that. Since his days are determined... Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I like that. Well, you know what? He didn't ask you, did he? Why are you alive? Did you go online and fill out an application to exist? Did you, were you tired of nothingness? Why are you alive? You're alive because God willed for you to be alive. You had nothing to do with it. He, de he, he decided that you would be part of his creation. You're an important piece in the sense that we're all important because we're made in the image of God. But this isn't chance. This isn't karma. There is, God has a plan for the ages, and it includes all things. The heavens are his, the earth is his. It all belongs to him. And history is going somewhere. And you're a part of it, I'm a part of it. Are we all kings like David? No, most of us aren't kings. Most of us are just average guys. Abraham Lincoln said God must love average men because he made so many of them. We're just average guys. But you know, the world can't, the world can't function without average guys going to work. And we've kind of got, we got a kind of problem in this country because we got a whole lot of guys that are healthy that are sitting on their butts and not going to work. And they're just parasites. And you know it and I know it. Okay, I'm going to ratchet back here a minute. But you can't, you can't exist that way, can you? Your days are determined. Look at uh, 14.5 of Job. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. So as you sit here, the reason you're here, the moment of your conception was determined by God. 
The moment of your birth was determined by God, and the moment of your death has already been determined by God, and there's not a thing you can do to change it. And why would you want to change it? Why, if you know Christ? To die is promotion. Jesus said, he who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And that's all because of Christ. It's all because of what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus conquered death. Jesus is the one who gives eternal life. So go to Ephesians 2, verse 8. So what does this have to do with David? Well, David's already lived his life. David's already run his course. But we're still running. And what do we need? We need encouragement. So go to Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. A lot of us were raised in churches and in denominations where the, the way that you earn salvation is by being a good guy. The way you earn salvation is by doing good stuff. Uh, you do good deeds. Uh, you help people out who are poor. You, uh, you, um, you give blood to the Red Cross. You, um, and we have this idea that if I do enough good things, and you have this old, you know, the weight, you know, the balance, at the end of my life, you know, God's going to take the good and he's going to take the bad. Man, I, man, hopefully, man, I sure hope it's going to come out. Well, you know what? You're in trouble. Because the heart, Jeremiah said, is desperately sick and wicked. Who can know it? Can the leopard change his spots? Can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Then you can do good. Then you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. The heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who can know it? We are sinners. And the problem, and the problem is we are born sinners. We come into the world tainted by sin. And, the, and here's the deal. God requires 100% perfection. 100%. And you can't cut it, and I can't cut it. I can't give enough money to the Red Cross. I can't give them enough blood. I can't take in enough Katrina victims. Neither can you. I can't do enough good stuff because I'm screwed up. And God requires 100% perfection. So what did God do? He sent his own son, who was without sin, to die in our place. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's nobody else that you trust in. And you don't need anybody else to have access to God. You don't need anybody else to have access to Jesus. You just need Jesus. What does the Bible say? I'm, I'm asking you, not what, what you were taught. I'm asking you, what does the Bible say? It says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's it. There's nobody else. So you go directly to Jesus. He's the Savior. He conquered death. For by grace, you, I, remember, I remember when I was in seminary with my buddy Robert Lewis, we were... We went over to the YWCA that had a big dorm in Portland, downtown, next to Portland State. And I was in a church in downtown Portland. Anyway, there were some gals that were in our college group, and they, uh, they came and talked to me and said, hey, there are some, uh, we've got some Mormon guys that are coming through and having a Bible study, and we're, and we're kind of confused. 
And we don't know what to say to these guys. Would you come? And they, they said they'd be glad to meet with you. So Robert and I went over there. We were in seminary. We went over and sat down with these two guys, nice guys. And we talked for a couple hours. And uh, we just, you know, had a very civil discussion about what we believed and who Jesus... I want to tell you something. And there's a lot of discussion going on right now. But if you look at the roots roots of Mormonism, Mormonism is not biblical Christianity. Because they have a different Jesus than the one you and I have. When you start getting down to brass tacks. And they have a different book. This is the word of God. This is the word of Christ right here. It says at the end of this book, if you add to it or you subtract, there'll be a, there'll be a, a, a curse put on you. Yet Joseph Smith said that he had an angel appear to him and give him a whole new set of books. That the Book of Mormon is another testament of Jesus Christ. There is no other testament of Jesus Christ. And, and, and you know, some of you guys may be uncomfortable. But listen, you just got to look at the facts. You know, we've, we've gotten so sensitive in this culture, you can't even deal in facts anymore. Well, that's offensive. Why is it offensive? You look at the facts. They both can't be right. Oh, yes, they can't. No, they can't. Keep your finger in Ephesians 2, but flip to the left. You say, what does this have to do with David? David was surrounded by false religions. Just as we're surrounded by false religions. And David, all of his life, adhered to the one true living God and his son, Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 1. Paul says this in verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. Watch this. For a different gospel. He doesn't say the same gospel. He says a different gospel. Which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now watch this. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, let him, he is to be accursed. As we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. We had a good conversation with those two guys, very sincere guys. And they gave their viewpoint, and we listened, then we had some interaction. And then Robert and I gave ours from the scriptures. And then they kept telling us, I said, I'll tell you what, if you can, if you can show me that in the Bible without using that other book, He goes, well, this is... I said, no, it isn't. Well, he got this book from an angel. And I read him in Galatians. I just read, I read him that passage. I said, no, we're sticking with this book. This is the Word of God. But an angel. This says, even if an angel from heaven should appear to you and preach a different gospel. And that's a different gospel. It's a different Jesus. And then he gave his, you know, his view. And, and then I said, okay, and Robert and I talked. And we talked about grace, the grace of God out of Ephesians 2.8. We talked about what Jesus did on the cross. We went to Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that any man should boast. So you know what the gospel is? The gospel is that I do no works. I come to him as I am with my sin, with all my junk, and I say to him, I am a sinner. I believe that you're God. I believe that you're the Son of God. 
I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I turn to you. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. I believe in you. And then you know what happens? When we believe in Christ, we are forgiven of all our sin. I said when Jesus went to the cross, how many of our sins were future? I just heard a guy teach this like six months before. And so all of them. I said, that's right. You know what that means? As we sit here now, it means my past sins have been forgiven by Jesus on the cross. My present sins have been forgiven by Jesus on the cross. And it means that my future sins have been forgiven. And I'll never forget that one guy looked at me and he goes, that's unbelievable. I said, it is, isn't it? Only it's believable. That's the gospel. He said, I wish I could believe that. I said, that's the gospel. He was, he was so drawn to it. It's not works. It's not out knocking on doors. It's, not, it's the sheer grace and mercy of Christ. But see, when he comes into our lives and he changes our hearts and he forgives us of our sin, it just doesn't stop there. Look at, you guys still in Ephesians? Look at what happens in verse 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that any man should boast, For we are his workmanship. Watch this now. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You say, oh, there you go. There's good works. Not good works to be saved. You were already saved in Ephesians 2.8 when you trusted in Christ alone. Jesus is the Savior. You don't save yourself. Jesus saves us. Jesus was the, Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. He wrote a check, and I say this, With all reverence and all respect, Jesus wrote a check that I couldn't write. I can't pay for my sin by good works. I can't do enough good works. Jesus gave his life for me and for you. He paid the debt we couldn't pay. But now that he has saved us, look what happens. So he saved me from sin. Yeah, now now I find my purpose in life. For we are his workmanship. We saw that in Psalm 139. He made me, he formed me, gave me certain gifts, other gifts he didn't give me. All right, watch this. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, before you were born, that you might walk in them. So God has a purpose and a plan for your life, just as he had a purpose and a plan for David's life. What does Acts 13, 36 say about David? After David, uh, he served the purposes of God in his own generation. You're alive and you're in this generation because God has a purpose for you. When David finished his work, what happened? He died. You're saying, so God has works for me. Yeah. Well, what are they? Oh, I don't know. You don't know either. But he has works for you to do. If you've been in this study, you've heard me say this 57 times. But see, we got to keep hearing this. You're alive because you, he has a work. He has saved you. He's transformed you. He's got a work for you to do. So I'm not even sure what it is. That's okay. He knows what it is. You just say, Lord, lead me. So, well, Steve, I failed. Okay, you failed. Well, you know, no, God can't use me. Because I, I, I can't tell you how many guys have talked to me over the years. Man, Steve, I'm just sort of, I wish I could be used by God. 
I really want to be used by God, but I can't. Why can't you be used by God? Well, I'm a failure. I failed. He said, you failed. How'd you fail? And he said, well, I did this, I did this, and I just failed. I said, so you're, you failed, and you can't be used by God. And he goes, yeah. So let me get this straight, because you failed, you can't be used by God. He goes, yeah. I said, let me ask you something. Do you, any, do you know any guy who hasn't failed? How many of you guys in here have not failed? And I'll tell you this, you raise your hand, you just failed. <laughs> You're really screwed up if you raise your hand on that one. You see? We're all messed up, are we not? Listen, the only people that God can use are failures. He's got nobody else to choose from. Right? Right? Only Christ didn't fail. All he's got is us. We're, we're all 29th level draft picks. None of us are first, first round draft picks. Not spiritually. We're not, even, we're not even on the board. We're, we're dead men. And he raises us up. He gives us life. And he takes our failures and then he uses us. Isn't that wild? So see, the reason you're still alive is he's got something for you to do. I, I, I got an email from somebody the past week, and they just mentioned that they're, they've got, and I'm hearing this more and more, of guys that are in their 50s, and they're raising their grandsons. And never thought they'd be there at this point in life, but they're, for whatever reason, I run into guys almost every week, I'm raising my grandson. You tell me a more important work in the world than that. Are you kidding me? you got a little boy, and you've got a shot to influence his life and to show him what it means to be a man and show him what it means to be a godly man, I'm telling you that's the most important work in the whole world. Huh, that's incredible. What a blessing from God. And what an inconvenience. <laughs> at times, because those kids will run your ragged. They'll exhaust you. You go to bed at 6.30 every night. Right? Because they'll worry out. But is that not a blessing? Yeah, it is. Okay, now, that's the setup. Because <laughs> remember, we're looking at David's life, and now you say David's life's over. Yeah, but I want to look at one other. Remember, we're looking at his life through some individuals. Go to First uh, Chronicles 12.32. In 1 Chronicles 12, 32, you get a listing. And I'm going to do this pretty quickly. You get a listing of all the men that came and joined David when he was on the run in the early years from Saul. And you get a listing of great military. Most of these guys were great athletes. They were great warriors. And you go through the list, and they're just, they're, they're just a group of first-round draft picks militarily. They're just incredible guys. And they're the kind of men that men you'd want on your team if you were going into battle. They were the SEALs. They were the Green Berets. Um, you know, they're the Marines, the first guy to hit the beaches. And in the list, in the middle of this list, you're reading about all these guys who were, you know, I mean, you read about the, right out of the blocks about the sons of Benjamin who used the slings and the bows with the right hand, with the left hand. You get down 
to verse 15, the sons of Gad, you know, they were the first ones who crossed the Jordan when it was overflowing the banks. When it was a mile wide and uh, 350 feet deep, those suckers swam it. I mean, they were unbelievable guys. You get to 21. These, uh, it lists these guys who uh, helped David against the band of raiders. They were all mighty men of valor. They were captains in the army. Then you get down to verse 32, and it lists the men of Issachar. And what it says about the men of Issachar is this. The men of Issachar were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. That's what they brought to the table. I think that's fascinating. These were the guys who played a key role in David's life. Would they go to war with him? Yeah. But you know what these guys had? They just weren't, they just weren't willing to battle. These guys were thinkers. They brought two things to the table that nobody else had. Number one, they understood the times. You know what that means? They had discernment. They had discernment. Here's the second thing. They had vision. Vision. So what do you have here? It says the men of Issachar were men who understood the times. That's discernment. And number two, they knew what Israel should do. That's vision. I want to, I, I, here's how I want to end this study on David. David served the purposes of God in his own generation, and he died. We're still alive, and we're men serving the Lord, and you know what we want to do? We want to serve the purposes of God for our generation. In order to do that, we've got to have a mindset like the men of Issachar. To, to serve the purposes of God in our generation, don't you want to be used by God? You're going to need two things. Number one, you're going to need discernment. What's discernment? Discernment is the ability to distinguish between the false and the true. It's the ability to discern between what's authentic and what is counterfeit. We, uh... okay, I'm editing. That's discernment. And then secondly, when you're able, because see, we got all these mass amounts of false information. We are surrounded by deception. We are, we are surrounded by lies. We are surrounded by half-truths. This is what we get in the media. This is, what we, this is what we're getting constantly. So what you have to be able to do is you have to develop spiritual discernment so you can cut through the stuff and not live like everybody else is living because you're not, your perception is not the kind of perception that everybody else has. Your perception, the natural man does not discern the things of God for they are spiritually discerned. You are a guy who's following Christ and you look at life through the lens of the Word of God. That is your primary influence. Okay. And then when you do that, and you have discernment, and you understand the times. They understood their times. We've got to understand our times, and then once you understand them, they knew what Israel should do. We, then we know what our families should do. We know how we ought to live our life. And I'm going to tell you what it means. If you have discernment, like the men of Issachar, and you have vision, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You're going to be going upstream in this culture. You're not going with it. You're fighting against it. Everybody's going this way, you're going this way. 
You're never on the raft just floating down the river. You're always going upstream against the current. And they're always criticizing you. And you're always the odd man out. And you're always the problem. Why? Because you have discernment. Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many are those that are on it. But narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are on that. Right? Um, we're in trouble in this country. Have you picked that up? Well, this is our generation. This is where we are. Did you ever think that you would live to see what we're seeing today? Probably not. I, I want to make two observations about our times. The men of Issachar understood their times. Actually, I want to make three. The men of Issachar understood their times. But see, we don't live in their times. We live in our times. I need to understand my times. Let me make three observations, see if these don't resonate with you. All right? Here's number one. In our times... The foundations are being destroyed. Psalm 11, 9. Or is it 9, 11? I think it's 11, 9. Psalm 11, 9. If it was 9, 11, I would have remembered that, but it's 11, 9. Psalm 11, 9 says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You know what's very interesting about what we're watching right now in this culture? We're watching the foundations being destroyed before our very eyes. Every family has a foundation. Correct? Uh, oh, let's, let's, talk about an let's talk about a husband and father. Every husband, every father has a foundation. Jesus talked about the, the foolish man built his house on the sand. That's a lousy foundation. The wise man built his house on the rock. That's a good foundation. And when the storm comes, the guy that built his house on the rock, he was fine because he had the right foundation. So as a man, you've got to have the right foundation. The, the, the church is built on the foundation, on Jesus Christ as the cornerstone and the foundation of the apostles and prophets who wrote scripture. So my foundation as a Christian man is Jesus Christ and the word of God, period. That's it. Okay? And a church that teaches his word. So then my family. You got a Christian man that's based on Christ, built on the rock, then his family's going to be based on the rock. How about a community? A community is only as strong as its foundation. A, uh, a nation is only as strong as its foundation. This nation's never been perfect, but why, why is it true that for a couple hundred years, people have been coming from all over the world trying to get to this country? Why? We have a different foundation here than other countries. And because we had a different foundation, based on scriptural principles. Not perfect, not flawless, but you go to D.C., you go to D.C. and you see the Word of God everywhere. It's carved in marble. It has to drive them nuts. Everywhere you got the Bible. You don't have the Koran, you got the Word of God. Because it was based on the Koran, there wouldn't be any religious liberty. They'd take your head off. That's why our guys in the army can't have Bible studies in Saudi Arabia. But they can have their studies here. Here's a different foundation. How many people on your street are picking up their family and moving to Cuba? Not many. Why? They got a different foundation in Cuba than we have here. 
We've never been perfect, but our laws and the foundational principles were based on the Scripture. But in our time, the foundations are being destroyed. Does that resonate with you? Second observation. In our time, truth is no longer essential. Truth is gone. It's been fascinating to watch this Penn State thing develop. And you, and you got to ask yourself, everyone's, oh, the cover-up, why was there a cover-up? Well, it's a university. How can there be moral outrage at a university when they don't even believe in absolute truth? In higher education in America, there is one absolute truth, and that is there is no absolute truth. Do you understand? It's called postmodernism. And some of you guys, maybe you don't get this. They literally teach there is no, because there is no God, then there is no absolute truth. Therefore, there is no morality. Therefore, how can you say anything is right or wrong? They're so conflicted morally, they don't even know what to do. They've been given over to a reprobate mind. See, when you lose the fear of the Lord, you're in trouble because the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is beginning of knowledge. But when you deny he's there, you're given over to an unreasoning mind. Truth is no longer essential. Not in this country. We're lied to constantly. 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 We're lied to. And it's all explained in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Now, we know we're in trouble. I, I, I've always found it interesting that you can't find the United States of America in biblical prophecy. Don't you find it interesting? We're the big guys on the block, and a lot of things are starting to happen prophetically. And we're not there. I always thought that was interesting. The rise and fall of great nations. Are we rising? No. What are we doing? We're falling. Why? Because we've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness about God. And you've heard all the stories about we took prayer out, we took the Bible out, we took, you know, it's just boom, 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 boom. And the SAT scores went down. Okay. It's well documented. We've been living off the spiritual capital of the past, but it's about over. Now, once again, if you weren't depressed when you walked in here, allow me to help you. <laughs> but we ought to deal with reality because we're men. And see, God has called us to be alive during this season. And he wants us to serve his purposes in our generation. So what does that mean? Um, there's a third reality. But before I get to it, let me say this. Are we in trouble as a nation? Yeah. Are the foundations being destroyed in this nation? Yeah. Let me give you a tip. Make sure in your life as a Christian man, the foundations are not being destroyed. Maybe everywhere else they are. Well, we're thinking about getting married. I run into Christian couples all the time. Well, they're living together. Why are you living together? That's sin. You're destroying the foundations. So what are you going to do when your kids want to have premarital sex? What are you going to tell them? You've already undercut yourself off of the knees. You see? 
don't destroy your own foundations in the name of Christ. You be different. You follow Christ. But this is, will of, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So before you get married, don't sleep with her and don't live with her. Marry her. Oh, and then stay married until you die. That foundation is being destroyed, isn't it? You make sure you don't destroy it. You bolster it up. Okay? You got that? How many of you guys are married? Stay married. Okay? If she wants to leave, there's nothing you can do to stop her. But don't you leave. You with me on that? Raise your hand if you're with me on that. Okay, don't leave. Because this is being videotaped and we're coming after you. <laughs> Oh, here's the second one. What we just say in our country, oh, this is true. Foundations are being destroyed. Yeah, they are, but don't do it in your life. Truth is no longer essential. Oh, that's true, and we can go through. What about you? Is truth essential in your life? I'll tell you what happened to me this week. I was talking to my son, and I lied to him. Didn't mean to, but I did. We're getting together Sunday. I'm going to square it with it. And I'm going to tell him why it happened. Am I looking forward to that? Actually, I am. Because I need to square it. I didn't want to do it over the phone, so I'm going to do it on Sunday. Because, see, I can't live like that. I can talk about all this, all these, all these, this is true. What about me? What about me? You can't have a good marriage. You can't have a good family if you're lying to each other, can you? So, Truth is necessary. We get in trouble when we start covering the truth. Here's the third principle. And once again, I get there at zero, 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 zero. Do you guys find this a little depressing? Let me say this. Don't be depressed. Because here's the third principle. In our times, God is still in control he is still working his plan for your life, for the life of your children, for the life of your grandchildren, and he's working his plan for the ages. And it will not be thwarted, and it will not be stopped. You've got to keep that perspective. He's got a plan for your life. Is God shocked about what's happening in your times? When you were born, did he not envision this? He knew all about it. He's behind it. He orchestrates it. He's never the author of evil, but he uses evil. He's not shocked. There's going to be an antichrist. Everything you see going on, and it's just not our nation, it's the, whole, it's the whole world is messed up. Europe is all messed up. If you read your Bible, you see it's being set up for the antichrist. Just read the last half of Daniel. It's all being set up. You say, well, when's this going to happen? When's this, when do you think this is going to happen? I don't know. But it's being set up. You think it's going to happen in mean, like, what, the next few weeks? Well, I don't know. Nobody knows. But it's being set up. And if you read your Bible, you can just see how it's all being set up. It's Matthew 24. Wars, rumors of war, earthquakes. It's all falling apart. And when it's all falling apart and falling into chaos, there's going to be a one world ruler who's going to surface and he's going to smooth everybody and he's going to win everybody and they're all going to love him, but he's going to be against God. 
He's called the Antichrist, and he's going to surface. And it's part of the plan of Almighty God. But it's not the whole plan. Can I show you the whole plan? Now that I'm out of time? But what are you going to do? Go home and watch Greta? Um, she has a cooking show. I, that's, she's on the Food Channel. Okay, maybe you thought of something else. Look at, uh, look at Revelation. Hey, guys, history's going somewhere. God has a plan. God has a plan, and we are right on schedule. We're right on schedule. So, oh, man, you know, it's just so out of control. It's not out of control. It's under control. God runs the world. He raises a... You're concerned about this? Go home and read through Daniel. Read through all this. Just read through Daniel, and every time it talks about kings and rulers and authorities, read about who sets them up and who puts them down. God does. Okay. So there's going to be Antichrist, yeah, and he's going to rebel against God. Okay, 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 good. All right. But here's where it's all going. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. That's us. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her, hus- her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. No more sexual abuse. No more rape. No more murder. No more uh, divorce. No more. It's all over. It's done. It's finished because Jesus is coming back. There's going to be a new Jerusalem that comes down. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. And if you know Christ, you're going to be there. That's where we're going. That's what's going to happen. Go to uh, uh, 22. I saw no temple in it uh, of 21. I saw no temple in the new city. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, there it's temple. The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb, Jesus. You know Christ and you trust in Him, you'll be there. 22. Then he showed me a uh, chapter 22. Then he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the New Jerusalem, you'll see it. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse in the throne of God, and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. Because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. This is where we're going. This is where history is going. Remember John 14, Jesus said, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me and my Father's house and many mansions. We're not so I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place, I will come and receive you unto myself. You know what that means? Here's what it means. He's got eternity taken care of. He's got you covered forever. There's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. There's going to be a new Jerusalem. You're going to be there if you trust in Christ alone. 
follow the reasoning. If he's going to do that, and he's coming back to receive you, does it not make sense in the times in which we live, where everything's falling apart, that if you belong to him, that if he's got eternity covered, will he not take care of you every single day of your life and give you what you need? Will he not? It's only logical. So are things bad? Yeah. Are they going to get worse and worse? Yeah. So what do you do? Go eat a cheeseburger. <laughs> and thank God that he's in control and that you know Christ. Watch a little football. Enjoy life. Because he's got you covered. Of all people, we ought to be joyful. Because we know the truth and we know the Savior and we know where it's all going. We're blessed men. Let's pray. So, Father, David lived his life and fulfilled your purpose for him and his generation. Here we are seeing things we never thought we'd see and we're puzzled and we're troubled and we what the heck's going on? Well, you're not shocked. You've raised us up to be men in this time. Our families need stability. Our family needs men who love Christ at the helm. Men who aren't going anywhere. Men who aren't going after some 23-year-old young thing. When our wives hit 40 or 50 and go through menopause, we're not going anywhere. We're staying put because we're men of Christ. We're not going to be fools. We're going to follow you. And for those of us, Lord, and we've all been fools, see, well, this is what's so great. We can come to you with our foolishness and our sin and be immediately forgiven when we come to you with broken hearts. You don't turn us away. We have great hope. And, Lord, we think about our kids and our grandkids. May we not fret over them. May, I mean, we love them and we're concerned and it looks like things are going to get tougher, and they are. But, but Lord, we pray favor upon them. We pray that those children will be regenerated by the Holy Spirit and know Jesus from their heart. That you will implant eternal life in them and that they in turn will, will raise godly, marry godly mates and then stay together and then raise their children to know Christ. We would pray for the generations to come who have yet to, been born, to, to be born. You bless David in his future. Would you bless us in our future after we're gone? That would just be grace, but that's how you operate. Help us to enjoy the holy days. Help us to be thankful for what we have. Things are tight. Just about everybody's pinched. But don't let us lose our joy you give to your beloved even in their sleep. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.